0: as Welcome back to Season 2 of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is Episode 2-13. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Back in 693, Caliph Abdul Malik ibn Marwan sends an army led by Hassan ibn Nu'man to pacify North Africa. Ten years later, Hassan ibn Nu'man defeats the Berber queen Kahina, the Umayyad's last major opponent in North Africa. Umayyad authority now extends from Egypt to the modern borders of Tunisia. However, they have yet to capture much of Algeria or Morocco. So before we begin discussing the Muslim conquest of Andalusia, let's discuss some of the things happening in North Africa or, as it is known in the Umayyad Caliphate, Ifriqiyah. This is the the Islamic province or the Umayyad province of Ifriqiyah. The sub-governor of Ifriqiyah was the man who conquered most of it, the conquering general Hassan ibn Nu'man. And as we mentioned in our intro, Hassan ibn Nu'man had been appointed by Caliph Abd al-Malik ibn Marwan. We have discussed previously the friction that existed between Abd al-Malik and his brother Abdul Aziz who was the governor of Egypt. Way back in the day during the the war with Ibn Zubair, Marwan ibn al-Hakam had established the line of succession for the caliphate. He wanted it to go first to his eldest son, Abdul Malik, and then to his younger son, Abdul Aziz. However, as Abdul Malik, who was the caliph after Marwan ibn al-Hakam, as he got older, Caliph Abdul Malik wanted his son, al-Walid, to succeed him. Abdul Malik tried to convince his brother, Abdul Aziz, to give up his spot in the line of succession in favor of al-Walid. Naturally, Abdulaziz refused to do so, and he also refused to promise to give the succession after him to Al Walid as well. Well, in the end, none of this really mattered since Abdulaziz died before Abdul Malik, which allowed Caliph Abdul Malik to pass the caliphate on to his son Walid anyway. However, while these two brothers were alive, there was some friction, some animosity between them regarding this succession matter. This eventually led Abdulaziz, who was once again the governor of Egypt, to dismiss Hassan ibn Nu'man as the sub-governor of Ifriqiya. Ifriqiya at this time was considered a district, a sub-district under Egypt and Abdulaziz Aziz was the overall governor of Ifraqiyah because he was the governor of Egypt. So Abdulaziz Aziz, he wanted to appoint his own subordinate rather than his brother's subordinate over Ifraqiyah. And the man Abdulaziz wanted to run Ifriqiya for him was Musa ibn Nusayr. Abdulaziz appointed Musa ibn Nusayr as governor of Ifriqiya in the year 704 CE, which corresponds to the year 84 AH, 84 years after the Hijra. Now a little bit of background about Musa ibn Nusayr. Musa's father, whose name was Nusayr, was a Christian Arab who was allied with the Sassanid Empire. The Sassanid Empire, or the Sassanid Dynasty, was the ruling family over Persia before the Muslims came through. Nusser, that is Musa's father, Nusair was captured and enslaved by the Muslims during the conquest of Persia. Nusair eventually accepted Islam and was free by his Umayyad owner. Now, I'm not sure if his owner was Abdul Malik or it could have been Othman. The sources are not exactly clear, but it was, it was one of these two caliphs, either al Malik or Othman. Anyway, this made Nusir a Maula of the Umayyads, even though he was already Arab. Most of the Mawali, which is plural for Maula, a Maula pretty much means a freed slave who was still attached to the family that had once enslaved him. This made Nusayr a maula, even though he was still an Arab and most of the mawali during this period of time were not Arab. They were either Turks or Persians or Greeks or some other ethnicity but not Arab. This is one of those few instances where the maula was an Arab. From that point forward Nusayr and later on his son Musa served the Umayyads loyally. Musa ibn Nusair eventually came to Egypt where he came under the authority of Abdulaziz. He worked for Abdulaziz. He was loyal to Abdulaziz, the governor of Egypt, and Abdulaziz elevated him to high rank and wanted to reward him for his loyalty by giving him the governorship of Ifriqiya or North Africa. So Musa ibn Nusir establishes himself in Kairouan, the capital of Ifriqiya. He begins campaigning west of Tunisia with plans of capturing the Maghrib or Morocco as we call it today. This mostly entailed fighting and defeating many of the various Berber tribes and Berber tribal alliances in this region of northwest Africa. This also resulted in the Arabs or the Umayyads acquiring large amounts of slaves during this period. Musa ibn Nusir went on to defeat several Berber tribes, including the Hawara, the Zanata, and the Kutana. Now, after these tribes submitted to Musa ibn Nusir, he usually appointed one of their own local people to be their leader. They would, of course, have to have been loyal to the Umayyad authority and loyal to Musa ibn Nusir. And in most cases that I'm aware of, they were Muslim and had accepted Islam. Now, after these tribes were defeated and they submitted, Musa ibn Nusair generally appointed a local Berber to be their new leader. This would have been a Berber who had accepted Islam and who was loyal to Musa ibn Nusair and the Umayyad authority. Musa ibn Nusair did not only use violence and warfare to bring this portion of North Africa under his control. He also used diplomacy and dawah in North Africa as well. In addition to fighting, sometimes he had to fight, but sometimes he used diplomacy. He established diplomatic alliances with various Berber tribes. Many of these diplomatic alliances led to large-scale conversion to Islam, entire tribes, entire Berber tribes converting to Islam. So many people actually credit Musa ibn Nusair with converting most of this portion of North Africa to Islam. So by the year 709 CE, which corresponds to 91 AH, most of North Africa was at least nominally Muslim. That's how effective Musa ibn Nusair's policies were, both his Marshall uh, martial policies, his his war policies, as well as his diplomatic and dawah policies. Politically, however, even though most of the people, most of the Berbers by this time had converted and accepted Islam, politically most of the regions of North Africa that we now consider Algeria and Morocco, most of these regions were not yet under Umayyad control. You had a whole bunch of newly converted Berber Muslims, but they weren't paying taxes to the Umayyads just yet. The Umayyads did extend indirect control over some parts of Morocco and Algeria through the alliances they had with the local Berber communities. So Musa ibn Nusayr's forces are just sweeping across Algeria. They go across Algeria and into northern Morocco. And eventually they conquer Tangier, which is on the northern tip of Morocco, just across from Spain. In fact, according to many sources, you can even see Spain from Tangier. Tangier, which is pronounced Tonja in Arabic, is an ancient city that had been around for centuries long before the Muslims came around. In the past, it had belonged to the Phoenicians, it had belonged to the Carthaginians, the Romans, the Vandals, the Byzantines, and now it was in the hands of the Muslims. But during this whole period of time, no matter which foreign force controlled Tangier or controlled Tangier, Berbers had always lived in and around and were usually the majority population of this region. So now that he has Tangier, Musa ibn Nusir appointed his mawla, who was also a Berber, he appointed his mawla, a man named Tariq ibn Ziyad, as the governor of Tangier. Musa ibn Nusir left Tariq in Tangier with a small military force, most of whom were Muslim Berbers. Musa also left a few Arabs under Tariq's authority and he instructed the Arabs to Teach the Berbers, both those in the military and those living in Tangier. He instructed them to teach them Quran. So basically, they were to teach the Berbers Islam. After Musa left, Tariq ibn Ziyad began establishing a Muslim garrison in Tangier, as well as a Muslim settlement, allowing for more uh, Muslim settlers to arrive in Tangier and establish a full Muslim community. Meanwhile, Musa ibn Nusayr continued south, going deeper into Morocco. He did some conquering down there, but then he returned to Kairouan and left Tangier and Morocco in the hands of Tariq ibn Ziyad. And by the year 90AH, which is roughly 708 CE, Tangier was firmly under Muslim control. Now let me read a quote from The Great Arab Conquest by Hugh Kennedy. It was less than 70 years since the first Muslim troops had crossed from Egypt into Cyrenaica. During that time, the war had ebbed and flowed in the most dramatic fashion. Throughout, the key had been the Arab control of Tunisia and their new capital at Qardawan. By 708, there was a firmly established Arab administration in most of modern Tunisia. To the east, both Cyrenaica and Tripolitania were under Muslim rule. The areas of modern Algeria and Morocco remained a real Wild West. The only major Muslim presence in this area seems to have been the garrison at Tangier. So Tangier, as we can see, was the main Muslim hub in Morocco. It was really the only true control the Umayyads had in this region. And Tangier would become the jump-off point, the flashpoint, for the Muslim invasion of southern Iberia, or as we sometimes call it, Al-Andalus. And that's where we're going right now. Let's discuss the Muslim invasion of Al-Andalus. But before we do that let's discuss Al-Andalus before the Muslims arrived. Let's talk about the name first. It's not really clear, it's not certain where the word Andalus or Andalusia truly comes from. The entire peninsula, which includes both Spain and Portugal, is known as Iberia. However, the Romans called this peninsula Hispania, and this is where the word Spain comes from. Some people believe that the word Andalus comes from the word Vandalos, which was a Spanish name for the Vandals. We mentioned back in episode 2-7 how the Vandals were one of the Germanic tribes that swept through this region after the sacking of Rome. Others say that Andalus comes from the word Atlantis. Whatever the case may be, The word Al-Andalus was definitely being used by the Muslims as early as 716. So, we're talking just five years after its conquest. So, the word Al-Andalus was used by Muslims very, very early on. Now, there aren't that many reliable Muslim or Arabic sources on the conquest of Andalusia. I'm talking early Arabic or Muslim sources on the conquest of Andalusia. The sources and the writings and the documents that do exist are discounted by modern historians. They say that they're too fanciful and they were written a long time after the events and the conquest took place. And there is some truth to that. One account written by an Egyptian man named Abdul Hakam was written nearly a hundred years after the conquests. Another one, written by a Persian Muslim named Razi, was written nearly 200 years after the conquests. Razi's documentation of the conquest of Andalusia was really a collection of stories and legends that existed during his time that were all about the conquest of Andalusia. Now, there is a Latin document called the Chronicle of 754, obviously written in 754, and it discusses the conquest of Andalusia, but it is very dry. I don't know how else to put it. It is. It sticks to the basic facts of the conquest and it doesn't provide a lot of description or details. However, as it stands right now, the Muslim sources are really all we have to go on. The Chronicle of 754 is also used to supplement and sometimes verify the Muslim sources. But for the details, the Muslim sources are what we have. Tardik ibn Ziyad, he had firmly established himself in Tangier in the year 708. At this time, Iberia was a Visigoth kingdom. Iberia had been conquered by the Visigoths, one of those Germanic tribes we spoke about, 300 years earlier before Tariq arrived. The capital of this kingdom was Toledo in central Spain, and its king was named Witiza. This king Witiza died in the year 17 CE, and his death led to a succession crisis. Before he died, King Witiza selected and chose his son to succeed him. However, This kingdom had long had a tradition of an elected monarchy. An elected monarchy is where the next ruler is elected or chosen by certain groups or people within the kingdom. However, this elected ruler must come from within the ruling family. It must come from within the ruling dynasty. However, It is not automatically selected. The monarch, the king, is not automatically selected based on birthright. It doesn't automatically go from father to son. The ruler has to be chosen and approved of by the decision makers of whatever kingdom or empire is in effect at that time. The nobles of the kingdom were upset by the king appointed his son, a man named Aquila. This may sound familiar to you because this is very similar to the crisis that sparked when Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan appointed his son Yazid ibn Muawiyah to replace him or to succeed him in the caliphate. It was a similar thing where the Muslim nobility, in this case it would have been Hussein ibn Ali and Abdullah ibn Zubair, they opposed Muawiyah's selection of Yazid ibn Muawiyah and opposed and fought against Yazid. Anyway, here in Iberia, after the king died, the kingdom's nobility in Iberia tried to prevent Akilah from taking power. But of course, Akilah had his supporters and this led to a small-scale civil war, not a full-fledged civil war with two armies trying to destroy each other. This seemed to have been more infrequent outbreaks of violence and rebellion there was also a lot of political intrigue going on behind the scenes ultimately Aquila's opponents were able to remove him and get a noble who was not in the dynasty at all he had no relation to the previous king they were able to get a noble named Rodrigo declared as king Rodrigo means Roderick in English So while all this is going on, around the same time that all this confusion is going on in Iberia, Tardik ibn Ziyad is preparing to invade al-Andalus. Now this invasion of Andalusia was sparked when a nobleman named Count Julian came to Tangier to meet with Tardik ibn Ziyad. This is 711 CE, the same year that Muhammad ibn al-Qasim was preparing to invade Debul in Sindh, which we discussed in episode 11. So these events are going on at the same time as the events of episode 11. Count Julian was the ruler of Siuta. Siuta is pronounced Subtah in Arabic. Siuta is a small city in northern Morocco. It's about 25 miles east of Tangier. Interestingly, even though Ceuta is in Africa, it is still part of Spain, even today. This is not too weird because we can think of here in the United States, we have Alaska. Alaska is nowhere near the continent of the United States. It is closer to Russia than it is to Seattle, but it is part of the United States. Same thing with Ceuta. It is in Africa. It is separated by a channel from Mainland Spain, but it is still part of Spain. It is not. It is not a colony. It is not an overseas possession. It is considered part of Spain. According to the story, Count Julian wanted revenge on King Rodrigo, which is why he came to Tordesillas in the first place. Count Julian has sent his daughter to Rodrigo's palace to be educated, Instead, she wound up pregnant and presumably by king rodrigo himself and now count julian wanted revenge so count julian helped tardic and his men acquire boats he provided them with intelligence about southern iberia he gave them logistical details on how to invade iberia now much of this story i gotta let you know that much of this story is considered legend by modern historians. It's not really clear, it's not really certain just how true this whole episode with Count Julian really is. But as I mentioned, the Muslim sources are all we have to go on at this time. One thing we know for sure Tariq ibn Ziyad definitely crossed the Straits of Gibraltar and began the invasion of Andalusia around spring 711. So Tariq and his men crossed over the Strait of Gibraltar in the boats Count Julian provided. They landed on the shores of a bay on the Spanish side now, and not too far from where they landed, there was a small, a relatively small, triangular mountain overlooking them. This mountain became known as Jabal Tariq, which means the Mountain of Tariq. Now, we're not sure. I couldn't find any verification how Jabal Tariq got his name. I'm not certain if Tariq gave it that name or if his men gave it that name or if the name just came later. However, over time, Jabal Tariq was shortened and corrupted to become known as Gibraltar. So from there, Tariq and his men captured the port city of Algeciras, which is near Jabal Tariq. And this allowed the Muslims to continue ferrying in supplies and reinforcements from Morocco. So now the Muslims have established a toehold in Iberia. Now it is kind of curious that the Muslims were able to get into Iberia so easily. The kingdom that they were about to conquer, it wasn't weak, it wasn't decaying. The internal institutions within the kingdom were strong, especially the church. But it seems that the crisis that started with the king appointing his son as his successor and then the low-level civil war between the new king and his opponents and then the ultimate ascension of Rodrigo as the king of Iberia, it seemed that all of this presented an opportunity for the Muslims and they fully exploited it. If this story regarding Count Julian is true, it shows how many people and how many powerful people were really upset with this new king, King Rodrigo. The Muslims were able to come into Iberia and as we're going to see in a few moments, conquer huge parts of the peninsula. The local nobility and the local people were not willing to risk their life and property to keep King Rodrigo in power. Speaking of which, King Rodrigo was hundreds of miles away fighting another rebellion, a Basque rebellion in northern Spain. When he heard of Tardic's invasion, King Rodrigo broke off the fighting and immediately rushed south to meet Tardic ibn Ziyad and his Muslim army. Meanwhile, while the king was trying to get to the south, Tardik was being very deliberate and cautious with his campaign in southern Iberia. He made sure to stay close to the port at Al which we mentioned was very close to Jabal Tariq. He brought in more forces. He supplemented his current military with 5,000 additional troops from Morocco. And by the way, as we mentioned, most of Tariq's soldiers were Muslim Berbers. There were a few Arabs here and there, but most of this initial invasion force were Berbers, Muslim Berbers. Now, there were some local Christians who opposed King Rodrigo that supplied troops as well. Of course, these Christians didn't know that the Muslims would wind up staying in Iberia for the next 800 years, but that's what happened. There are also many reports that the Muslims received assistance from the local Jewish community. It shouldn't come as a surprise that The authorities in Iberia, the Christian authorities in Iberia, had implemented a bunch of anti-Semitic laws against the Jews living in that region. In fact, just before Tardik launched his invasion, new laws had been passed stating that the Jews living in Iberia were to be forcibly converted to Christianity. So naturally, when the Muslims came, many of these Jews supported them and helped them in their a conquest of Andalusia I'm not sure if they necessarily took up arms and joined the Muslims but they almost certainly would have given them support logistical information food supplies things like that and knows best so King Rodrigo finally arrived with his troops from the north in July 711 corresponding to the year 92 AH and the two sides began fighting near a small town named Medina Sidonia. Medina Sidonia is about 35 miles west of Gibraltar. However, Rodrigo's men were exhausted. They had just been fighting in the north and then the king had pushed him on this forced march over several hundred miles to the south. Additionally, there were several factions within Rodrigo's forces that were working against him because many of the soldiers within his own army still supported the ousted king, Aquila. Let's read a passage from Arab Conquests. Rodrigo headed for the mountains to fight them, and in that battle, the entire army of the Goths, which had come to him fraudulently and in rivalry out of ambition for the kingship, fled and he was killed. Thus, Rodrigo wretchedly lost not only his rule, but his homeland, his rivals also being killed. And so we see that Tariq ibn Ziyad defeated King Rodrigo and the king was killed during this battle. After this victory, Tariq and his forces continued north towards Cordoba. They did meet some resistance at a city called Esiha, about 93 miles north of Jabal Tariq. Tariq went on to capture the city Esiha, and at that point he decided to divide his troops up to cover more ground. So he sent one faction consisting of 700 mounted soldiers. He sent them north to Cordoba. This faction was led by Tardik's maula, a man named Murith. Now this is interesting because Murith was a maula of Tariq. and Tariq was a maula of Musa ibn Nusair, And Musa ibn Nusir was the son of a maula himself. So, the thing is that Tardik, even though he was a Maula, he was a free man. And according to the rules at that time, free men could have slaves. And Tardik had a slave at one point in time named Murith. Murith accepted Islam and Tardik freedom. And now Murith was Tardik's Maula. And Tardik was Musa's Maula. So forth and so on. While Murith went on to Cordoba, Tartar took the rest of his men and headed for the kingdom's capital, Toledo, which was located much further north in central Spain. Cordoba is about 125 miles north of Gibraltar, while Toledo, the capital, is about 265 miles north of Gibraltar. So let's talk about Murith and the conquest of Cordoba. Murith and his men, on their way to Cordoba, they captured a shepherd and forced him to give them details about the city. The shepherd told them that the city had mostly been abandoned by the nobility and all that was left was the governor and a small garrison of about 400 men. The shepherd also told Murith and the Muslims that there was an unknown opening in the city walls that they could use to sneak into the city. So the Muslims used this information to do just that. They snuck into Cordoba at night. However, once the governor learned that the city was being infiltrated, he and his men fled to the local church and fortified themselves inside. They barricaded themselves inside. Murif and the Muslims laid siege to the church for three months. The governor tried to run away, but he was caught by Murif, who ran him down, but he did not kill him. Instead, he took the governor prisoner and then had all the guards executed. The governor of Cordoba, meanwhile, was sent back to Caliph al-Walid back in Damascus, and now the Umayyads controlled Cordoba. Over in Toledo, Tariq was having an even easier time taking that city. When Tariq ibn Ziyad arrived in Toledo, just like Cordoba, the city was mostly abandoned the Archbishop of Toledo had fled the city and ran back to Rome. Tardic captured Toledo without any real issues, without any real opposition. He then went on to capture another city called Guadalajara, which is about 65 miles north of Toledo. And so now, with the Muslim conquest of Guadalajara, the Muslim armies were only 215 miles from the modern border with France. Tariq ibn Ziyad was closer to France than he was to Morocco. That's how quickly the Muslims had ran through Iberia. Well, all of this news eventually filters back to Ifriqiya. eventually filters back to Karawan, and Tariq's master or boss, so to speak, Musa ibn Nusir, hears about what's going on, and he wants to join in. He wants to join in and take part in this conquest. By the way, Tariq ibn Ziyad had done a lot of this conquering without getting approval from Musa ibn Nusayr, and so that caused a little bit of friction between them as well, but that's for a future story, inshallah. In the spring of 712 CE, Musa ibn Nusayr brought his own army, 18,000 soldiers, most of whom were Arabs this time, whereas most of Tariq's soldiers had been Berber, most of Musa's soldiers were Arab. In fact, many of them were descendants of the Sahaba, and they were highly respected. So we can see Musa ibn Nusair means business. Musa ibn and his eighteen thousand soldiers crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, and entered Iberia. So while Tariq was way up in the north, operating way up in the north by Toledo and Guadalajara, Musa ibn Nusair remained in the south, and he began to consolidate and establish his authority in what is now southern Spain. Musa ibn Nusair attacked the city of Seville and conquered it. Seville is about 83 miles northwest of Gibraltar, The defenders of Seville put up some resistance, but they eventually abandoned the city and headed west. So Musa encountered very little opposition, and Seville fell with ease. And that is how the Umayyads began the conquest of Andalusia. We're going to stop here for now. In the next episode, inshallah, we'll return to Central Asia, where Kutaba is about to face off with Nizak. Inshallah, I hope to bring all of this together successfully. We have a lot of things going on at this period of time of the Umayyad Caliphate. We have Muhammad ibn Qasim over in Sindh, operating in what is now Pakistan. Then we have Tariq ibn Ziyad and Musa ibn Nusayr over here in Spain. We also have Hajjaj ibn Yusuf and Kutayba ibn Muslim in Khurasan, and they're not even really close together because Hajjaj ibn Yusuf is in Iraq, whereas Kutayba ibn Muslim is in what is now Uzbekistan. So this empire is humongous. There are lots of things going on, and the politics of this period are going to become important, inshallah, and I hope I can bring it all together for you. We'll see how things plan out, but for now, we're going to have to wrap it up. Until next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.